You are listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Libya Studies Lecture Series and was recorded via Zoom on the 22nd of February, 2023. In this podcast, Lena Kraus, CEMAT Resident Fellow, interviews Dr. Leila Tayyib, Assistant Professor-in-Residence in the Communications and Liberal Arts programs at Northwestern University in Qatar, about mobility, memory, and the performance of Busadia in Libya. Leila, thank you so much for joining us today. You were a presenter last year at the 2022 Ames Arts and Humanities Conference on Libya, and we're delighted to now have you on the podcast to discuss your research in more depth including your forthcoming article, To Follow Busadia, Mobility and Memory in Libyan Cultural Politics. You come from a background in performance studies, and your research employs ethnographic approaches to inquire about sound, digital intimacies, and militarism, as well as political authority in daily life. However, your most current article on Busadia feels especially close to home. Busadia is a figure in the oral traditions of North Africa and part of a set of performance practices that include a song and a children's game. You recall in the article that your father used to sing the song, Where is Busadia, when he was a child in the 40s. I won't put you on the spot to sing for us today, but would you mind presenting Busadia as you remember first learning about him? Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to talk with you about this research. So I know in some ways a very little about what my father's experiences were like as a child. He's never been one himself for stories, which makes it all the more remarkable that he has talked with me about this idea. I don't exactly remember when the first time he mentioned it to me was. It would have been after the time I began doing research in Libya in 2011. And I can't quite recall who the first person who sort of explained this character to me was. But I found the repetition of people just mentioning this figure, this character, really remarkable. And so it would have been, I guess, probably something I took back to my dad and said, hey, what is this? Do you know what this is? Which was surprising to me that it sparked then some enthusiasm and some stories of memories of being around his home in downtown Baghazi as a kid and singing this song and playing this children's game and remembering the character himself actually performing. Before moving on, I'd love to give this character a little bit of shape for our listeners. Can you tell us a bit more about these performance practices, including the song and the game? So this idea is a character attached to a myth that kind of allegorizes the trans-Saharan slave trade in my reading. But also more broadly, this idea performance practices are a set of traditions, rituals, and stories that people in various places throughout Libya, Tunisia, and I, I believe to some extent in Algeria as well, know about, reference, uh, have embedded in popular cultural practices. And so the song itself, I know you said you wouldn't put me on the spot to sing, but I, it's hard to talk about without singing the song. And if I'm not singing it, certainly the people listening, you know, those who know the song will. So the song says, That's so this call and repeat. Uh, I think there's slight variations on the way that people from different towns and cities sing it. But the call-repeat aspect is really important because the idea is that children are sort of moving about in a kind of never-ending procession where the second line telling them to just continue forward a little more never ends, right? This is repeated and repeated and you keep going in the way that good children's games go. So the refrain, Wayne Hosh Busadia, 
translates to where is Busadia's house. In the game that accompanies it, as you explained, children follow Busadia on his search. So what might Busadia be searching for? I think it's important to note that many people participating in playing this game as children, many people who either remember playing the game or have had parents, other relatives, talk to them about playing this children's game, wouldn't actually have known and continue to not necessarily know while playing what it was that Busadia was searching for. So for me, finding that out took a bit more research. But I found that some folks do know. The name itself, Busadia, tells us something about his social situation and the importance of that. Saidia is a girl's name, and in the myth is the name of his daughter. Importantly, Saidia, as I understand it, has also in various places in the Arab world been used as a name particularly for enslaved Black women and girls who are associated through a racial imaginary with magic and sorcery. So Busadia is the father of Saidia. He, in the myth, is a man living somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Different stories kind of describe with greater or lesser specificity, but I don't think really ever with particularly great specificity where he is. And he takes off across the Sahara in search of his daughter. Now, why he does that gets narrated differently in different stories. One of the Libyan versions of the story that I reference in this work says that he moved due to tribal or economic circumstances. But other iterations of the story talk about his daughter has been kidnapped by slave traders and he goes off in search of her. So the fact that this story actually differs in different tellings is a really important part of what I investigate when I look at this idea. It matters quite a bit if he is sort of understood to be a voluntary migrant and also the kind of economic element of that, that he would be moving for economic or tribal circumstances, circumstances that would presumably have nothing to do with the places, the cities in North Africa where he ends up. It matters quite a bit if we understand him that way versus if we understand him as compelled to travel in search of his kidnapped daughter. Thank you so much. So where does this exploration of Busadia fit into your research more broadly? So my field is performance studies. I began doing ethnographic research in Libya during 2011, during the period of the uprising and revolution. And I was focused in particular at that time on musical practices and people's experiences of music during the uprising revolution. And so on the one hand, a character like Busa Idea comes to be interesting to me because I'm interested in broadly popular songs and this falls into that category. But Busa Idea, I think, did not ever come up to me as something that I knew of people using in particular during that year, the way that some older songs, popular songs of different eras came to be essential for people. But this character, you know, I say call him he because he really is a sort of like active force in how people talk about him. He came up repeatedly and sort of stuck with me so that in the kind of context of my broader research, he sort of operates in a similar way to the way I described in this paper, where he is really just kind of always there lurking around, haunting the other things that I'm doing. So while my broader research focuses on sound in daily life, focuses on questions of militarism and things like digital intimacies and a broad range of other areas, this research is also quite a bit different because I oftentimes use ethnographic methods and this is a project that is focused much more in the past than my research has frequently been. I'm especially interested to learn about Busadia as you consider him from the perspective of performance studies, and more specifically through the lens of mobility and dance, which we'll talk more about later. I think creating this framework will be really helpful. You describe performance as a constellation of traditions, rituals, and stories, and at another point, as acts, discourses, and effects. Even the audience could be considered to participate as a character in these practices. 
Can you define what performance and mobility mean in the context of your research? Certainly, yeah. Thank you for that. So when I'm thinking about performance, I'm thinking, as you mentioned, from the perspective of performance studies as a field, which conceptualizes performance really broadly. One of the things I tell my students in class is that your task when you're analyzing performance with a performance studies method is to choose the scope of the frame. So it's up to you if you decide that what you're focused on is a particular kind of theatrical practice that's happening on a stage, or do you zoom out a bit and include the audience, also understand them as part of the performance? Do you zoom out further sort of temporally and understand the rehearsals that lead up to this performance as part of what you're considering. So in one kind of fairly simple way of describing what we do in performance studies is to make choices about that scope of framing. One of the reasons that that is really helpful in thinking about character and set of practices, such as Bo's idea, is that it helps us to really focus with care and specificity to the different, as you said, performers involved. So here we would include those who have embodied the character of Busaidia historically in sort of real life, those who have narrated tales of Busaidia. We would understand them as performers in this analysis because in telling those stories, whether through writing or orally, they are themselves performing, acting in the world in a specific way. We would also include those who are emotionally invested in this idea, which makes it really broad and makes this sort of, for me, shows how many people are really central parts of this kind of research, both in terms of how thinking about this idea in different ways might affect their own lives, but also who I really am interested to understand their perspectives. And lastly, this idea himself, of course, as a haunting force. And then I think the second thing it would be important to mention is that thinking through performance iteration is something that we focus on. So we're thinking about the way that to repeat is never to do the exact same thing in the exact same context. And that becomes really important as we're thinking through what we'll get into later around the prospects of reparation. One of the kind of basic assertions in performance studies is that it is never possible to repeat exactly the same performance. A performance is always different when it's done again. And yet, and yet the practice of repetition and rehearsal is a central part of how performance happens. It's oftentimes hard to identify the first time something has happened. And that the possibilities for embedding power structures or disrupting power structures are therefore always in play. That in that change that happens between doing something once and doing it a second and third and fourth time, there's the possibility of kind of reinstantiating a power structure that benefits some and hurts others. And there's also at the same time, always the kind of radical possibility of there being a shift in that structure. When we're talking about mobility, what I'm thinking about in the context of this research is broadly movement and its conditions of possibility. I'm thinking about the movement that happens in the children's game. I'm thinking about the movement of people forced in the case of Busaidia's daughter and compelled yet agential in the case of Busaidia himself. And this enables me to attend to the conditions of possibility whereby what kind of movement is possible, what kind of movement is compelled, as I put it, and how those things do and might change over time. I definitely want to return to this and talk more about your methods later. I think it would also be helpful to have some historical context. Would you mind giving us a bit of background about the history of the trans-Saharan slave trade as it pertains to Busadia? So the slave trade was abolished legally in Libya 
1856, while Libya was then a part of the Ottoman Empire. But researchers have shown that it persisted for more than a half century after that, and finally drew to a close somewhere around the time of the Italian invasion in 1911. Enslaved people were transported across the desert as one of a range of other commodities. Some of those were gold, ivory, and ostrich feathers. The Libyan coastal cities in which people remember Bosaidia to have danced, Benghazi and Tripoli, were both ports for the caravan trade in which enslaved people were sometimes sold to local buyers and more often moved further to other parts of the Ottoman lands. Thank you. So many of the first Bousadia performers were formerly enslaved people who busked in cities to earn money. During the colonial period, he also appears frequently in postcards, which render him somewhat of a caricature. However, Bousadia has also become a part of the oral traditions of North Africa. So how has Bousadia been presented in his many forms throughout history, and how should we understand him today? As you mentioned, we have this really kind of wide variety of forms through which we can find this idea. And I frame it in that way because there's an interesting kind of echoing between the search for this idea that is the song and the game, the way that the song and the game function, where you're literally asking the question, where is this idea's house? And you're continuing, continuing to look for it and you presumably never find it, although there's some variety in how people narrate that part. And then my own experience of trying to figure out who is this Bosaidia character who keeps coming up. So he appears, as you said, in colonial postcards, which I should take a minute to say something about those. These are postcards that scholars in other contexts have shown were often staged as if they were presenting daily life or as if they were presenting a kind of performance in progress, a street performance in this case, in progress. So the postcards as resources, as archival materials, are problematic in themselves. So I try to be very careful how I work with them. What kind of evidence can they offer? What kind of complex questions do they open up about the past, about our ways of understanding the past? And one of the things that I point to in the article has to do with the circulation of these colonial postcards in particular on websites in which Libyans, whether in or outside of Libya, are talking about this idea as a character and oftentimes are kind of recounting stories about this character, sometimes as if they're kind of a narrator who can see a scene really happening, other times from the perspective of kind of childhood memory. And these images from colonial postcards have really frequently appeared alongside these narrations, these texts online. And one of the things that this I think, asks us to point to, asks us to think about is how do we understand our own colonial history and the kind of epistemological frame? So that is the ways of knowing the indigenous population that, as we know, were based in really limited understandings of native culture and had very specific kind of motives behind the way that things were presented. How do we then pick those up and use them in the contemporary period? And are we doing so with a critical lens or are we sort of assuming that the way that Italian photographers and other European photographers saw Libya is the way that we should also continue to see the Libya of the past? That's a perfect segue into my next question about your methodology. In the case of Busadia, you relied on archives and ethnographic interviews. What are some of the challenges you face in conducting this kind of research, and specifically in the Libyan context? I'm going to answer this question a little bit in a counterintuitive way. 
we oftentimes start from thinking about the various kinds of lacks of resources that we have for research in and on Libya, I think with good reason. But rather than thinking about, for example, the lack of some official archives that you have in other places, I'm going to start from the point where we have a wealth of popular archives. There are many, many people who have collected things in their homes, who have created digital archives. This is purely a wealth. At the same time, it brings challenges. And one of these is that you often have to come upon these archives somewhat accidentally. So you'd have to sort of meet someone who knows that somebody else has this collection of things from a certain time. And then whether or not that person is kind of interested in sharing them, whether they might be suspicious some of the time of what it is that you might be interested in these things for. I think, for example, of a time where I had a friend and research interlocutor introduced me to a person in Benghazi who had documents related to an early musical education institution. I wasn't quite sure what I might be looking for in this archive, but I thought it seems like it could be interesting. But then the kind of tricky part of is this person interested in sharing and then where is the archive? In this case, I think it was in a part of town that was not accessible because of the war. And so it wasn't quite clear. Not only did the person whose archive it was not at that time have access to the archive itself, but it wasn't quite clear whether it would still be there when they were able to return to the family home where things were kept. So there's a kind of, you know, the broad sort of instability of the political situation has had a difficult impact on particularly the keeping of these popular archives. At the same time, and I think this is the broader challenge, is that there's not always institutional or sort of broad public support for archives that relate particularly to culture. And I think this has to do in part with the kind of what it is to grapple with a history in which, you know, you had a regime that for many years really defined what counted as Libyan culture in really narrow terms. And so I think we're just still working through what does it mean to make those definitions broader? And then within that process, what kinds of things do we value and keep and consider worthy of study? My hope is that this writing and our discussion today can provoke discussions among people who know something about Bosadia, who don't, who are curious, and I would really like to see the oral history component of this research grow exponentially. I would really love to be able to perhaps create a platform in which people's memories of and perspectives on both idea performance practices could be collected and shared. I think these kinds of platforms are being built and are part of what's really needed in Libyan cultural studies moving forward that are accessible to the broad public and that can themselves begin to build some of the archives that we lack in other circumstances. And I think this idea could be one really important component of those kinds of collections. I'd like to shift into the heart of your research, which is about mobility and memory in Libya. You propose that the performance of Busadia allows Libyans to deal with an unresolved history of slavery. What indicates that this history is unresolved? How are memories of Busadia partial, unsettled, and unsettling, as you say? In the article, I discuss a description of Busadia that came out of a government-conditioned book on the national folkloric dances of Libya. 
So the kind of text that would be seen as a sort of authoritative resource, authoritative description on Booth's idea of performance as a cultural practice. And in this description, the author talks about Booth's idea as a man of African origin, these are in the translated words, who migrated from his original region due to social or tribal circumstances and settled in the African North. And he sings and dances to earn his daily living. So I examine this language in the article because I think it points to the question of the unresolvedness of the history of enslavement in Libya. This language suggests a kind of whitewashing of how it came to be that large numbers of people moved from various parts of Central and West Africa into, as he puts it, the African North. The fact that it's sort of discursively possible to talk about this man, Busaidia, being of African origin, and then to say that he migrates and settles in the African North only sort of functions as long as we understand the racialized implications of the idea of being of African origin. So it's common up to today in North Africa to talk about people, African people, as a way of talking about Black people and as also a way of sort of implying that people have an origin that's outside of North Africa. In some of my other research, I argue that it's as though it lifts any kind of possibility of Blackness in North Africa out of that context and says that Blackness originates elsewhere. And this, of course, is not historically the case. And as we know, there are lots of Black Libyans who are from Libya and not from somewhere else. But there's a racialization that happens wherein we understand what it is to be African as to be from somewhere other than the Arabic-speaking countries of the northern part of the continent. In talking about this collective memory, you propose that to remember Boussadia is to forget. I found this tension between memory and omission very powerful. What do Libyans today remember of Boussadia? One of the things that I trace in the article is the kind of generational change of remembering Boussadia. The ways that people of a certain generation are likely to remember seeing the character perform live, where the one below that might know the song but not have ever seen the character, have heard of people seeing the character. The one below that might know the recording of the song but never have played the game outside. That this kind of this shift but as I trace that change, I'm also tracing the way that these practices of remembering Idea also have embedded within them a kind of willful forgetting. One of the things that people say to kind of provoke some laughter and some sense of togetherness in groups will be something about how we don't know who Idea is and we don't know where his house is. This is usually the big joke, right? Because the song asks, where is Busaidia's house? It's a really enduring joke to say, well, maybe now we can finally find where Busaidia's house is, or where is it anyway? Sort of to really um, play on this point of we don't know about Busaidia. And I try to really investigate what this not knowing does, where it comes from, and what it does to continue to repeat it. One of the scholarly phrases that I draw on here from the theory of haunting that I use is the kind of ontologies of dissociation and epistemologies of blindness. So I'm thinking about the kind of ways that people sort of help each other to willfully forget anything that they might have known about Bose idea. And that this is not something that happens just on a kind of individual level, but that it's part of a broader cultural force where we, for some reason as a kind of 
broad communal memory, both are really attached to holding on to Booth's idea and want to pretend like we don't know really what he was all about. And that part, what I'm really arguing is that that part that we want to pretend like we don't know about is the trans-Saharan slave trade. This theme of memory is central to your research, and the other is mobility. I want to talk more about dance, which informs your reading of this performance. How is performance, and specifically dance, a useful lens to understand mobility in space? In this particular writing, I draw on Randy Martin, a dance scholar, who describes dance as a kind of embodied practice that makes manifest how movement comes to be, so makes it clear for us how movement comes to be. Then back to his words, by momentarily concentrating and elaborating in one place, forces drawn from beyond a given performance setting. So what he's describing here is the way that particularly dance, with its focus on the moving body, in the kind of scene of the moving body as a kind of highlighted spectacle, enables us to actually see all of what happens outside of that frame, historically, politically, culturally, how that enables what happens in the small frame so that there's a kind of analytical possibility to reach beyond by focusing in on this specific scene of the dancing body. One of the things that has been a focus of many scholars focused on dance has been the way that dancing bodies, let's say, copy other dancing bodies. So if you're learning dance in a classroom, if you're learning dance at a wedding from your relatives, that process of watching someone else's body move in space and then trying that movement out on your own body is a really complex process that has been a focus of scholarly work in a number of contexts. And so one of the things that dance studies with those kinds of insights can help us do when we're thinking about cultural memory is to think, I think, in a really detailed way about the process of mimesis broadly, about how we attempt to follow what others have done in the way that they have done it, how slight changes are always a part of that process, and how embodied traditions are full of small changes along the way as they're passed down. That they are not sort of static things that continue unchanged over time, but that each body taking up movement does it slightly differently. So this, I think, helps us to think about what it means to remember Bose's idea and the ways that we remember him, but also the different ways that we might take those practices and pieces of art as we move forward. That's fascinating. Are there any other factors that inform your reading of this collective memory? One of the primary theories that I use in the chapter that we haven't gone into today is a theory of surrogation. And just to briefly explain what this is, this is a kind of process wherein as history sort of moves and there are all kinds of violences that unfold and with those loss, loss of various kinds, the theory is that people try to sort of cover over those in order to continue on. And that in that putting something putting a cultural object, putting a practice, putting a, let's say, song in the place of the painful loss, that this is an imperfect kind of fitting. 
and that there are gaps left in this. So if you kind of imagine a hole that's been left by, I mean, really something like a, like a bomb, right? That there's a hole that's been created in the earth in order to kind of travel on that earth, you need to fill that somehow. So this theory of surrogation is looking at this kind of process in our emotional cultural lives. How do we try to deal with losses by filling them with something in order to be able to continue traveling along the road? I think that we can understand both the kind of continued importance of this idea for Libyans broadly, but also maybe the specific interest of young people as in part a result of the many, many losses that people have incurred over the past 10 years, 12 years since 2011. And it makes sense that nothing can perfectly fill those holes. I want to conclude with what you are thinking about in terms of the opportunity for restoration and repair. Why is it significant that the memory of Busadia has endured until today? And where might we see evidence of this repair? Busadia has been a familiar figure we've turned to over and over again in search of orientation and comfort. With that repetition comes the continued possibility always of moving differently this time, breaking out of the loop of willful forgetting to see and understand Busaidia's ghostly presence differently. Busaidia, I write in the article's conclusion, continues to compel us both because he seems to promise the cohesion that we lack and also because underneath that promise he demands deeper redress. I think it is not for me to say what that redress should look like but I hope to be among the Libyans who work toward it. Thank you so much, Layla, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.